0: I I don't believe it's any accident that all of us are here on this particular day to hear this particular sermon, this specific message. So I hope you have an openness to receive the Word of God, something that God wants to speak directly into your life today. Let's jump right in. Before we get to the passage of Scripture today, this first Portion of Matthew chapter three. I really want to talk about the transition from chapter two to chapter three. So in chapter two, we find just all these amazing characters that God is using, and, and if you remember last week, kind of the, uh, the 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 tragedy and the anxiety and the chaos that's swirling around the activity of God. That God is moving, but that doesn't mean that. Heartache isn't happening, but then between chapters 2 and chapters 3, there are 30 years that transpire. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to know what happened. I mean, that's a significant, like in a series of books, you have the first book, the second book, and then you go to the seventh book. Say like what just happened here? 30 years that transpire between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Have you ever thought about that before? Have you ever thought about Jesus Christ as the most influential person that has ever lived in the history of the world? And yet, we don't know hardly anything about 90% of his life. Have you thought about that? I find it fascinating. There's a book called Anonymous, The Hidden Years of Jesus, and the author says this. We know practically nothing about Jesus' first 29 hidden chapters. Only three, only three years, less than 10% of Jesus' days are visible through the writings of the Bible. Over 90% of his earthly life is submerged in the unseen. However, when we state our desire to be like Jesus, we're not referring to Jesus' anonymous years. I want to walk like Jesus walked and live like Jesus lived is generally not equated in our hearts with I want to live 90% of my life in absolute obscurity. Anybody here want to be like Jesus? Then here's the key. Listen closely. Be faithful when no one is looking. Be faithful in obscurity for the time will come when your calling is right But you have to be faithful in the hidden years sometimes. Be faithful on the back 40. Be faithful when you feel invisible. Wow, just think about Jesus and the 30 years. We have a snapshot in the Gospel of Luke when he's 12 years old. A snapshot in the Gospel of Luke when he's at the temple when he's 12 years old. But other than that, we really don't have anything. I mean, there's extra biblical... Uh, apocryphal works, but we don't, they're not really reliable, historically reliable. So, wow, God chose not to reveal 90% of the life of the Savior of the world. One commentator speculates about these hidden years, and I think paints a compelling picture of what the hidden years probably looked like. Listen to this. Jesus was fulfilling his duties as the eldest son. It seems most likely that Joseph died before the family had grown up. Sit pause button right there. We don't really know. But the last time we hear from Joseph in the book of Matthew is the end of chapter 2. Right? And then in the, the the narrative of the Gospel of Luke, we have Joseph when Jesus is 12. After that, there's biblical silence. A lot of most commentators think that he probably died. We don't know how old he was when he when he got married. We don't know kind of what happened, but most commentators think he probably died. But Jesus probably became the village craftsman of Nazareth to support his mother and his younger brothers and sisters. A world was calling him, and yet he first fulfilled his duty to his mom and to his family and to his home. Jesus learned what it was like to be a working man. He was learning what it was like to earn a living, to save, to buy food and clothes, to put up with customers that didn't pay their debts. It was, if Jesus was to help men, he must first know what men's lives were like. So before we jump into chapter three, just, it's fascinating to me that the break between Matthew chapter two and chapter three contains 30 hidden years of the life of the savior of the world. And you think about what that probably was like for Jesus as Joseph probably died and he became the breadwinner of his home, right? He just got up and went to work day after day after day, month after month, year after year. And then you think of Mary. Mary had at least six kids, right? We, we talked about this several weeks ago about uh, the Immaculate uh, Conception that the Catholic Church believes contrasted that with the the Immaculate, uh, the sorry, the Virgin Birth, the Virgin Conception, right? So Mary didn't stay a virgin, right? So after the birth of Jesus, her and Joseph had lots of kids, right? They were, they were biblical. They were fruitful and multiplied. And so Mary had probably at least six more kids. And so with Joseph being out of the picture for whatever reason, now you have Mary as a single mom with six kids in a small house. Have you thought about that before? Right? The break between chapter two and chapter three, there's so much in there. It's just bursting with narrative which is speculation because we don't have biblical material. We can only speculate. But the fact that Mary, the mother of Jesus, more than likely was a single mom with small kids, just think about that for a moment, that being in the middle of God's will does not make us immune from heartache and struggle. I hope you find comfort in that today, in the midst of your heartache and struggle, that God could be doing something supernatural in the middle of your mess. God could be doing something amazing right in the middle of heartache and loss. He did it over and over again in the Bible. He did it in Matthew chapter 2. And then we come to Matthew chapter 3, where the Spirit spoke to Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus as a 30-year-old carpenter, as a 30-year-old craftsman? And he's developed a reputation in his village. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody else's business. And then at 30 years old, as he talks to his heavenly father, as he walks with God, God says, today's the day. Can you imagine? He wakes up like any other morning, and today's the day that you go public with your mission. He was born for this, and yet he had these 30 hidden years that prepared him for his three public years. He had to be faithful in obscurity, in order to be successful in public. So Jesus, can you imagine? I wonder what that was like. The Bible doesn't tell us. Where he woke up and the Spirit of God said, today's the day, son. And he left his home and everything that he'd ever known. And he walked to the Jordan River. Can you imagine what he was thinking about as he made that journey from Nazareth to the Jordan? And then we pick up here and chapter 3 of Matthew. In those days, and basically that first five minutes was that portion of the passage. In those days, what days? The days 30 years after the previous period. He ended that sentence, boom. That's a big period at the end of chapter 2, 30-year break. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. i tell you that out of one of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now for your spirit to empower your word and drive it into every heart, every circumstance today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have this bearded, burly Baptist bursting from the wilderness. This wild man. This this maniac that kind of just burst out onto the scene. Which, by the way, John the Baptist, we we learn a lot more about his backstory in in the Gospel of Luke. But he spent majority of his life in obscurity, munching on locusts and sipping honey in the wilderness. An uncivilized, uncultured man. He didn't follow religious etiquette of his day, and he burst out of the wilderness preaching and baptizing. This guy was a sight to behold because he probably like there's all kinds of speculation of what kind of group he was with, or if he was a Nazarite, he took these vows. He probably never had a haircut. So think of that 30 years old. And if, if he never had a haircut, this guy has dreadlocks. He's walking out of the wilderness and he probably never shaved his beard. So I just think about that for a moment. This is a hairy dude. As a matter of fact, in, in a, We'll talk about in a moment that he's Elijah 2.0. But when, when they described Elijah, right, the prophet that came out and gave a sermon, and, and the leader at the time said, what did he look like? And the guy said, he was a hairy man. Oh, that must be Elijah. That was the word on the street. This guy had a Duck Dynasty beard. He had these dreadlocks probably dragging the ground. He comes wearing the camel hair, which is not cashmere camel. Like this is uncomfortable, big, heavy like animal hide coming out of the woods, preaching. But what attracted people to him was not his appearance, it was his passion. This guy, there was no lack of preachers in the day of John the Baptist. There were preachers and evangelists and rabbis, there were itinerant preachers. They're traveling the countryside. It's a very religious culture that we're talking about here. Something was different about John the Baptist. There was a fire in his eyes. There was a passion in his voice. The man had conviction, and he spoke with authority. So people came from miles around to hear this wild man preach, and it was crazy because he did not have a seeker-sensitive sermon. (laughs) This wasn't creating a comfortable environment for people to sip their Starbucks. Pick up your Starbucks in the foyer on your way in. This wasn't a climate controlled facility. This wasn't theater seating, right? This was John the Baptist calling people out and people came from miles around to watch this guy burn. Here's the thing, he offended people. He was abrasive. And yet people would go home and say, you gotta come hear this guy. He offended me. Come hear him. It was wild. People were coming out of the city, out of the suburbs, into the wilderness to hear this wild man preach about the one that is coming behind him, after him. And he, he, uh, he had an order of locusts with a side of honey. Now, that might seem strange to us. This food might seem unusual to us, but it's not really. In the context of the time that it was written, this wasn't unusual. Like, so that wasn't what Blue, you know, kind of, oh, he's eating locusts. That's crazy. That's bizarre. That was actually kind of an acceptable item on the menu uh, for that day and that time. You know, we eat different things in different parts of the world. So for me, where I come from, The second Saturday of October is the opening of squirrel season. (laughs) Some of you might catch the parallels here. An uncultured bearded Baptist (laughs) coming from the backwoods. (laughs) And so we'd go and we'd hunt squirrels. We'd bring them home. We'd clean them. We'd cook them. We'd eat them, right? And some of y'all are like, oh, oh yeah, we eat catfish too. Lots and lots of catfish. I'm like, oh, what a dirty fish. Let me tell you something. We eat frog legs too, right? We go, we call it frog gigging. You gig the frogs, right? You skin the frogs, you cook the frogs, you eat the frogs, right? Just grow some of y'all out. Right? But a little secret here, if you batter and deep fat fry anything, <laughs> it's going to be all right, right? <laughs> you know, the Cajuns, Amy, my wife's from Louisiana, and what I call scraps and fish bait, they call lunch, they eat crawfish with everything down there. Some people here eat prairie oysters. So we move on. John the Baptist is munching on locusts, sipping honey, wild man, steps out of the wilderness, this bearded, birdly Baptist with this passionate message. People are coming from miles around to hear him preach, and he is Elijah 2.0. So the last line of the Old Testament talks about what's happening in Matthew chapter 3. Remember now, 400 years before, you have the last prophetic voice in the Old Testament, that's Malachi, and then you have four centuries of prophetic silence, and then John the Baptist walks out onto the stage as the next prophet of the living God. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the literal last verses of the Old Testament. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So you find, again, in Luke chapter 1, a little bit more about this background to John the Baptist, when an angel tells Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father, he will bring many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, speaks of John the Baptist and says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come, whoever has ears, let him hear. So this is not just your next preacher, kind of the latest, greatest, the new pastor comes to town, people want to show up and hear him, see what he's got, check it out. This is the one that the prophets talked about, that God prophesied about, the one that's going to be the motorcade for the Messiah, the one that's going to usher in the Savior, the kingdom of heaven. In Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1, we find Zechariah, again, John the Baptist's dad, In Zechariah's song, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the most high, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet under the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. He lived in the wilderness until God activated his calling, a season of preparation that lasted three decades. So John explodes out of the wilderness onto the public stage, and he begins two things. He preaches and he baptizes. So here's John. He's he's this uncultured guy, this rough, burly Preacher that steps out of the wilderness and people are coming from miles around. And so he preaches and then he gives an invitation and he baptizes and then he comes back out and more people have showed up. So he basically preaches a very similar message. It's a one word sermon. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repent is the one word sermon summary of the sermon, the ministry of John the Baptist. He'd come back on out of the water and he'd preach, repent, And then he'd he'd give an invitation to people. So he'd he'd do this, preach and baptize, preach and baptize. But here's the difference with John the Baptist. Baptism wasn't unusual in Judaism, right? But the way he did it was, was shocking. So in order to become a convert to Judaism, you had to be baptized, right? So Gentiles were baptized to be cleansed like these dirty gentiles these second-class citizens had you know had to be baptized to as a symbolic way of washing away their gentile um uncleanness to, to to join god's people jews were never baptized But here's the shocking thing about John the Baptist. He's not preaching to Gentiles. He's not given an altar call for Gentiles to be baptized. He's preaching to the Jews, and he's saying, you are sinful. You need to be forgiven of your sins. So he's preparing the hearts of the Jewish people to receive the Savior. People need to know that they need to be saved before they can be saved. People need to have an understanding of their need for rescue. If you're good to go with God, right, you know what? I'm pretty much an awesome person, right? So I don't really need rescue. But when you come in and what the law does, the law diagnoses our depravity. The law diagnoses our need for rescue, our need for a Savior. We're all lawbreakers. We're all sinners. But the Jews didn't get that. He didn't. They didn't get it at all. His message was to repent, and he's talking to the Jews, which means to turn your life around, to get right with God, turning from sin and to God, from death and to life, from judgment and to forgiveness, from darkness and towards the light, from hell and towards heaven. And this is a personalized repentance. The Westminster Confession, part of it says this, Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. So you do have this, all have sinned and fall short short of the glory of God, right, this general repentance. But then in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist calls out specific people to repent specifically. He calls out, particular people to repent of particular sins. So he calls out the religious leaders. He calls out the wealthy that are putting their faith. He calls out these different people that are struggling with different things. And so part of the invitation today is for you, yes, to have a general repentance, but even more to have a customized repentance, a particular repentance. And what is God calling you to repent of? Not us. Real repentance always has results. What the, John the Baptist says here in his sermon, right? It's not just going through the motions, praying the prayer, checking the box. If you walk away from a supposed encounter with God and your life remains unchanged, then I think we can biblically question the authenticity of that encounter. Where there's been, where there is no transformation, There is no authentic salvation. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not a 180, right? This is a process. Transformation is a process. It's a lifelong process, but it needs to be happening. We need to be changing and growing. Real repentance always has results, according to John the Baptist, the fruit of changed behavior. Religious systems seek to modify behavior through external pressure, rules, and regulations. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is behavior modification from the inside out. It's God putting, uh, taking out our old heart, giving us a new heart. It's God taking out our dirty heart, giving us a clean heart. It's God placing his presence within us. And now the behavior modification is not external pressure to conform. Now it's from the inside out. It's Jesus rising up through his spirit and he's stretching out and he's filling more and more of who we are. That's the process of sanctification as you become, as you're transformed into his likeness more and more. That's repentance. The ability to change isn't strength of the will, but power of the spirit. You need to get this here, right? This is how we find freedom. This is how chains are truly broken. This is how addictions are conquered. This is how strongholds are demolished. It's not through strength of the will. It's through the power of the spirit. It's the spirit of God that gives, that empowers us to change. That's the internally motivated transformation that Christianity presents from the inside out. Galatians chapter 5, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And he says, there's going to come one after me that's more powerful than me. He's referring to Jesus. And he says, I baptize with water But the one that comes after me, Jesus, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So when the Spirit comes in, remember, it's an internally motivated transformation for Christianity, right? It's not be a good person, right? That's not Christianity. Be a nice person. Be a polite person. No, it's the presence of the living God moving into our lives, and that becomes the catalyst for change. It's not strength of the will it's power of the spirit but what happens is uh, the fruit that he talks about here the fruit of repentance right so the, Galatians chapter 5 the apostle Paul talks about spiritual fruit and it's love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control Every Christian has different gifts. Every Christian produces the same fruit. Different spiritual gifts, same spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So as we repent, that releases fruit, that releases the spirit into areas of our life that should increase our fruit production. Here, here's the thing. Listen, have you ever seen a branch strain? Anybody? Anybody? You ever walked into an orchard and you hear the branches, eh, come on, one more rep. Ooh. You ever seen branches strain to produce fruit before? They don't. Fruit is a byproduct of being a branch. <laughs> you don't have to. I'm going to try hard. No, you just walk with Jesus. You walk with Jesus, and the Spirit of God is going to do what the Spirit of God does, which is produce fruit through the limbs of your life. I'm going to try so hard. No, you just walk with God. Fruit is a byproduct of staying connected with Christ. John the Baptist offers a special rebuke to religious leaders. Now, they were banking on their heritage. They were banking on their resume, right? So they had this... Incredible religious heritage. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and their entourage rolled up to the river that day, and they expected John, the baptizer, to be impressed. They expected some public acknowledgement. I'd like to say we have some special guests with us today that came all the way from Jerusalem. Pharisees, Sadducees, shout out. Thank you for being here. That's what they expected, right? Because they're a big deal. So they rolled up to the river expecting to be acknowledged, and John acknowledged them publicly, just not the way they were anticipating. Whoo! He, see, he sees them rolling up, and they have all the, their, their holy roller garb on. They have the Bible verses and a little box attached to their forehead. Right, and everybody's like, oh, there, the Pharisees are here. Oh, and they're they're making way, you know, kind of like, oh, here, look, let them through. Let them have a front seat. Please take my seat. And John the Baptist looks up. I'm telling you, this bearded, burly Baptist preacher, right? He looks up and he says, you snakes. Whoa. And the crowd is like shocked into silence. Oh, did you hear that? I mean, they see the the ripple effect of, of shock throughout the crowd of, did he just say what I think he said? You brood of vipers! Who told you to scurry from the coming fire? When you light up when you light some some dry branches on fire, sometimes in the wilderness, especially in this part of the world, snakes would scurry from the flames, and that's what he's referring to. So John is the fire of God, and he's saying these snakes are running scurrying away, like they're slithering away from the work of God. Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Basically, he tells them that hey, you stand on the river. So I can just imagine this man here, right? He reaches down, this kind of gnarly hand with these long, dirty fingernails probably. Reaches down, picks up a rock from the riverbank, and he looks at those, and he says, you think you're good to go with God because you're a Jew? Because you're a son of Abraham? Don't you know God can make a son of Abraham from this stone? Can you imagine John the Baptist just rebuking them publicly? Right. Everybody else is just kind of listening in on this conversation that he's having with the religious leaders. This religiosity, that their best behavior is going to earn God's grace. John spoke with boldness. He was a fearless preacher. He spoke truth to power. In conclusion today, I'd like to ask one question that I want us all to wrestle with. Is there evidence of authentic repentance in your life? That's the question. When you look at John the Baptist and and this this, uh, maniac wild man, fire in his eyes, authority in his voice, steps out of obscurity and lights it up with the word of God. Lights it up has an abrasive appearance, has an offensive message that's from God. He intentionally made people uncomfortable. They were squirming a little bit. Couldn't dodge it. Because every person, the prerequisite for reconciliation is repentance. Every person, every person regardless of your background, regardless of your culture, right? And so the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, I'm an ambassador of God, as though God were making his appeal through me. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the message of the the Christian, the heart of the preacher. But yet the prerequisite for the reconciliation is repentance, to repent of our sin, is there evidence of authentic repentance in your life? And here's the harsh reality of the Bible. The uncomfortable truth is that a tree either bears or burns. So the metaphor of the branch or the tree, that's, that's a life. That's me. That's you. And so he's saying that these trees are either good for bearing fruit or they're good for burning Jesus says a very similar thing in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Remember, the branch isn't trying hard. The branch is staying connected. Fruit is a byproduct of abiding. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, proving yourselves to be my followers, my disciples. The proof of authentic faith is spiritual fruit. If you bear no fruit, you have to question the authenticity of the faith. So the trees are good for bearing or for burning. This is an uncomfortable truth that we all need to wrestle with because the stakes couldn't be higher. But what leads us to repentance? Let me conclude with this. It's not the wrath of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the anger of God that leads us to repentance. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 2. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? forbearance and patience not realizing that it's god's kindness that leads us to repentance so we don't buckle our knees and bow and worship at the wrath of god so much as the kindness of god ultimately expressed through his son jesus christ it's the gospel that triggers repentance at the foot of the cross we see the price that was paid for our sins he was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. You see the price that God paid to purchase my soul and repentance flows out. God, I repent of my sin. In Second Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish everyone to come to repentance this message today is for you from god to you through his word he is patient with you not wanting you to perish not wanting you to be a branch that burns he wants you to be a branch that bears much fruit he wants to know you and he's proven that he's demonstrated that While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, for you. Everyone is called to repentance, not just once, but this lifestyle of repentance, of confession, of devotion. This is how we release the Spirit of God into these areas of our life that we are more and more saturated with his presence. We are more and more filled with the spirit of God, which makes us more and more fruitful. Is there evidence of authentic repentance in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And I pray now your spirit would search our hearts, oh God. Test us to know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in us and lead us today into the everlasting way. Lord, your word says that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so I pray for general repentance, but I also pray now for that specific repentance, God, as you do do a personal work, below the surface of each of our lives something specific that your spirit is pointing out that you're convicting each person of that we're supposed to repent today of to turn from god that we would turn away from that sin and turn towards you god that we would get our lives right with you here and now in jesus name If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.